0: Thank you. All right. Does it pass? Okay. (laughs) Um, Is is there something to hold my notes, a music stand, or something like that, or probably need something, or even that little stool back there, if nothing else? um... Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, we are delighted to be here. Uh, for those of you who weren't at the conference, this is uh, the first time, thank you, that we've been uh, on Maui. Uh, we uh, came to Oahu when we were here a year and a half ago with the uh, Waterhouse lectures. And um, I, I assume you, you know what that is. That's uh, what brought us here both times. Um, this is the first time on your island, and uh, thank you for your hospitality, and we're looking forward to being here for uh, a week and uh, be back uh, teaching Sunday school and preaching again next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, unless things go poorly today. Um, that invitation gets rescinded, but my wife, Kathy, uh, is over there. If you've not met her, please do that, and so thank you for your hosp- hospitality and uh, for having us, and I think this is the fuzziest lay, uh This kind of keeps you warm. Is this a winter, sort of winter one? Okay, yeah. This would work back home. It's tomorrow. I suppose the high is one at our home uh, tomorrow uh, back in Kentucky. So um, it's great to be here for many reasons. uh, We're going to look at a number of passages uh, today, turning to a lot of different texts, unlike what we'll do uh, when when I preach. Um, But I want you to suppose that... uh, It may be very easy for some of you to do that there is a grief related to your family. Maybe family conflict, rebellion against God by one of your children, or there is no child at all, or maybe there is no spouse at all, and you pray as biblically as you know how, but your prayer is not answered. Does that mean you have no faith or that you don't have enough faith? Suppose that you're involved in a situation where wrong is winning, and right is losing, where lying is winning, and where truth and honesty are losing, where cheating is winning, and integrity is losing, where cruelty is winning, compassion is losing, and you pray for God to intervene, and you are certain what you're praying is the will of God to exalt the right, to stop the wrong, and it doesn't happen. Is that always because you don't have enough faith? Suppose you're sick or you're disabled, and like the wheelchair-bound Johnny Erickson Tata, you are told that if you trust God enough and pray, He will heal you. But when you trust God the best you know how, you ask Him to heal you, the healing never comes. And then you're told the only reason you didn't get healed is because you don't have enough faith. Is that true? What are we to do? What are we to think when we pray when we believe the best we know how based upon what the scripture teaches. And the prayer is not answered in the way we believe God had promised. Is that kind of success, if you will, success in the term of answer to prayer, a prayer that you are confident is biblically based? Is success the only evidence of real faith? If you get what you ask for, you get it quickly, does that mean you have faith? And is the only proof that you have faith this kind of success? Can you trust God faithfully and appear unsuccessful? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches the proof of faith is not always in success. If you're taking notes, that's half of my main point. The proof of faith is not always in what I'll call success. Now, there are those verses which indicate it's, it's not unusual to experience relatively quick in obvious answers as an evidence of faith. In, in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, Jesus says, ask and what? It shall be given to you, will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you for everyone everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened later on in Matthew 21:22 he assures us and all things you ask in prayer believing you will receive and we don't want to minimize those great promises And I think we all are are rightly concerned to say, well, look, the Bible teaches more about prayer than those verses. It teaches you must pray with our sins confessed, we must pray in faith, we must pray in the will of God. Those are Bible teachings, too. But I fear, certainly in my own case, that I can so qualify those great Bible promises with so many other teachings that I just blow all the air out of those great promises. I I undercut the the strength of those promises. But the amount of faith you have is not always revealed by successfully and quickly getting what you pray for. Again, suppose there's grief in your family, there's conflict, there's rebellion by one of your children or Grief because there is no child, there is no spouse. And you pray about these things and you have great confidence based upon the scripture and biblical counsel that what you're praying is the will of God and your prayer is an answer. Does that mean you have no faith? Well, for 30 years, just think in your own life. What a big chunk that is. Think back 30 years. Think of how long that is. For 30 years... After God had promised them face-to-face they would have a son, Abraham and Sarah still had no son and lived with all kinds of grief related to their family. They prayed, they prayed, they lived for decades praying what they knew to be the will of God, a face-to-face promise of God without the evidence of what God had promised. Does that mean they had no faith? Well, obviously not. What about the situation where wrong <coughs> is winning and where uh, right is losing we're cheating and injustice go unchecked and you pray about that and nothing happens is it because you have no faith one of the lesser known prophets in the Old Testament is Habakkuk Habakkuk and he looked out on the situation in Israel in his day And how the supposed people of God were rejecting godly living. And he prayed and prayed for God to intervene. He prayed for the wind of revival to come upon the land. Surely that's the will of God. Surely that's the will of God for God's people to keep God's law. Especially the leaders of God's people who are the teachers of God's law. Who are the most corrupt of all. Surely it's God's will for them to live according to the law. And that's what Habakkuk prayed for. At the beginning of the book, which bears his name, we read this, Habakkuk 1, verse 2. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and evidence are before me. Strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law... And the point is, this is your law. This is your law, Lord. God, this is your law. The law is ignored and justice is never upheld for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So he says, Lord, the the nation and especially the leaders of your nation are corrupt. They're not keeping your law. Your law is ignored by the leaders of your people. Fix that. Surely. That is a good prayer. What does God do? He said, Habakkuk, if I told you what I'm going to do, you wouldn't believe it. And he says, well, tell me. And God tells him. And Habakkuk says, I can't believe it. God said, I'm going to send the Babylonians. I'm going to answer your prayer, Habakkuk. I'm going to turn the people back, but I'm going to do it by letting the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem and discipline my people. Habakkuk was like, Lord, we're awful, but they're worse than we are. I mean, it would be basically the equivalent of us praying for revival in America and God saying, okay, here's how I'm going to answer that prayer. I'm going to let the Muslim nations overrun America. And force people by the sword to become Muslims or face being beheaded. And that will purify the church. We'd say, Lord, that's not what we had in mind when we prayed for revival. But that's basically what God said to Habakkuk. I'm going to use people worse than you to bring you back to me. And Habakkuk never did understand. But at the end of the book that bears his name, he says in Habakkuk 3.17, Though the fig tree should not blossom. Now remember that he's talking about an agricultural economy here. Basically saying though the whole economy collapse. Though the fig tree should not blossom. There be no fruit on the vine. Though the yield of the olive should fail. And the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold. There be no cattle in the stall. The stock market crash to zero. The gross domestic product go to nothing. Unemployment be 95%. Yet he says... I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds' feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk did not get successfully what he prayed for, but that tenacious prayer of faith at the end proves his faith was great. No answer, great faith. Now suppose you are sick or disabled and someone tells you that you stay that way only because you don't have enough faith to be healed. God once gave the Apostle Paul the ultimate human experience. He allowed him, he said, I don't know if I was in the body or not, but he got to go to heaven. And unlike these supposed spate of books recently of people who went to heaven, and I've done a a review, by the way, if if it's an issue Somebody that this uh, proof of heaven book, the one by the Harvard-trained neurosurgeon, who claims he says, "Here's the fact: my brain was dead, my brain was not working, but for a week and I was in heaven." And here's the story. And uh, I've done a review of that. If I can tell you where to find that, if you're interested in that. But Paul really did. Paul really did have the experience of being taken to heaven. And he saw with his eyes, not just by faith, he saw with his eyes how it all turns out. And so, I mean, this is the ultimate human experience. No matter what anybody ever said, Paul could just sit back and wait till they were done and say, well, I can top that. Somebody could say, you know, I'm, I'm the wealthiest person in the world. Paul could just wait, well, I can top that. Somebody could say, I, I bought an entire island in Hawaii. I own an entire island. That's nothing, Larry. I can top that. No matter what anybody said, Paul could wait and say, well, I can top that. I've been to heaven. Top that. And yet, after that, to keep him from having that sort of attitude, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, some sort of physical limitation. It's all kind of speculation about it, but he said it was to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, the thorn in the flesh, I entreated, I prayed to the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Whatever the difficulty was, Paul prayed. He prayed repeatedly. Do you think he prayed in faith? I mean, he prayed with the kind of faith that a man who has seen heaven prays. Paul prayed with a kind of faith saying, I know there is a God. I know he answers prayer. I know where we're all headed. No matter how bad things look on earth, I know how it all turns out. I have confidence in God and in the end of God's uh, purpose for creating the world. And it's all going to turn out okay. And they can stone me. They can do whatever they want to me. But I'm going to be in glory forever. And it's going to be soon. It's going to be okay. I mean, he prayed with the faith that we cannot imagine and no answer. Great faith did not get what he prayed for. So you can't always prove that you have faith or that you don't have faith by the success of your prayers because the proof of faith is not always in success. That's the first half. Here's the second half of my point. The proof of faith is not always in success, the proof of faith is often in perseverance when there is no success. The proof of faith is not always in success. The proof of faith is often in perseverance when there is no success. Listen to James 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. The Christ-like quality of perseverance. God will make us Christ-like He will work all of our life to make us more like Jesus. And one of the Christ-like qualities is perseverance, right? How is perseverance developed? The only way you get perseverance is by continuing faithful when you don't get what you want, right? If we're going to be taught perseverance, the only way to persevere is to keep being faithful when you don't get what you want. When all your prayer, if you pray in faith all the time and every prayer is answered immediately, as great as that is, what you don't get from that is perseverance. And we will be having perseverance develop within us because that's a Christ-like quality. And the only way to get perseverance is hard. So according to this passage in James 1, our faith is often tested and proven real not by getting what we pray for but by persevering and staying faithful to christ when we don't get what we pray for now our our tendency is to think of people like i I mentioned often during the conference like george Mueller, is great men of faith we talked about him a lot both during the conference and and in between sessions i highly encourage you to read his book um, I have my students read his book. It's it's very, very readable. And uh, it's like reading the next chapter in the book of Acts. Um, I usually take a survey at the beginning of my class, and at least a third of my students have never heard the name of George Mueller, though he's perhaps the greatest man of prayer and faith since the days of the New Testament. At the end of the semester, almost all of them are buying copies of that book to give away uh, to people. George Muller lived almost all the eighteen hundreds in Bristol England he had four international ministries a great worldwide impact but today he's remembered only for one his orphanage in a time during uh, Dickensian England when to be an orphan was to be Oliver Twist a street urchin there really were no government safety nets then he founded an orphanage and he would feed, clothe, house and educate orphans up to 2,000 at a time, over 10,000 in his lifetime. And he never made his needs known publicly to anyone except God in prayer. And God funneled over half a billion dollars in today's money through his hands. He had over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer in his journals, 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or same hour that he prayed them. I once calculated that's about six a day. Six prayers every day he prayed that day and they were answered that day. Now, I think we rightly do hold up men like George Mueller as great examples of faith. But think of Abraham again. Because in the Bible, he is held up as the great example of faith. And why is Abraham held up as a great example of faith? How did he prove the reality and the greatness of his faith? By getting 50,000 recorded answers to prayer? By getting great answers immediately? No, the Bible's example of faith is of a man who prayed for decades without getting his prayer answered. But he continued in faith. Romans 4.19, you might want to turn there. One of the most amazing passages in the Bible. So it's describing Abraham and his faith. It starts off, he says, without becoming weak in faith. That impresses me right there. Okay, 30 years, no answer. And his faith still stays strong. It doesn't get weaker. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So he looks in the mirror. This 100-year-old man does. And he's not impressed with what he sees. He looks in the mirror and says, okay, haven't had a son. I look in the mirror, hmm, don't see much hope there. Then he says, he looks at the deadness of Sarah's womb. He says, okay, I've got a 90-year-old wife who has never had a baby. So what does that do for his faith? He didn't become weak in faith. So let's start over. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God. So he looked in the mirror. He looked at that old woman he's married to. Then he looked at something else. He looked at the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief. Wow. It didn't get weaker. He did not waver but grew strong in faith. Good grief. I'm impressed that he just didn't weaken. But he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and here's why. Being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Lord, everything I can see says I'm not going to get a son. Nothing in my life Nothing in my circumstances, nothing I can see leads me to believe I'm going to get a son. Everything I see, in fact, makes it less likely that I'm going to get what I want. But he kept looking at God, and his faith got stronger. Because his faith was not in what the circumstances appeared to provide, what they appeared to be able to do. Well, if this works and that works, maybe I can see this thing happening. Nope, we're going to have a son. A couple of things got to work out. At least one, and that's a man and a woman. And that ain't going to happen. But he looked at God, and his faith got stronger. And you know what? Even... Then he saw only a part of the reward of his faith since he didn't live to see the fulfillment of the promise that God made. You will be the father of many nations. But the man in the Bible who's held up as the great example of faith proved himself to be the great man of faith. Not by the answers to prayer that he saw, but by continuing to trust God when he didn't see answers. The proof of faith is not always in success. The proof of faith is often in perseverance when there is no success. And sometimes it will be the same way with you. The evidence of your faith in God and his promise about something will be proven sometimes not by obtaining the answer to your prayer but continuing to believe God, to trust God, to love God when he doesn't give you what you believe He led you to think he would give. When you continue to follow and love Jesus, when you don't get from Jesus what you think he was going to give you, that's faith. Who wouldn't follow Jesus when every time they prayed, if six times a day they got what they wanted? Who wouldn't be a Christian then? Who wouldn't profess to follow Christ when you got quick answers to every prayer you prayed? Now, let's be clear. The gifts we receive from him are received by faith. But the proof of faith is not always demonstrated in getting what you desire. Sometimes it's proven by loving and trusting him when you don't get it. Johnny Erickson taught us faith is at least as great by continuing to love and trust God when she's not healed than if God were to answer her prayer and heal her. Your faith is at least as great when you continue to persevere in prayer and to serve God here and to love and and follow Him in close discipleship. From the world's perspective, it makes no sense to do so. You show that I have a God I have a Jesus who is worth following even when he doesn't answer my prayers. He is great enough and glorious enough for me to follow. He is beautiful enough for me to love and have even if he doesn't give me what I want. I will follow him even when he disappoints me. I will follow him even though my prayers are not answered because that's not the only reason I come to him. I don't come to him just for what he can give me. I don't love God just because he's the celestial dispensary. I love him for who he is. And who he is does not change even though he does not always give me what I think he led me to pray for. Fred Dixon was a decathlete on the U.S. Olympic team in 1976 and in 1980. In 1977, he was the number one decathlete in the world. And for more than 10 years, he held the second highest score in American history in that event. He was an active member of the First Evangelical Free Church in the L.A. area where Chuck Swindoll was pastor at the time. In 1984, he was trying to make the Olympics one last time. On June 21st of that year, they were having the trials in the L.A. Coliseum and, uh, to see who was going to make the Olympic team. At the end of the first day, he's in first place. You know how the decathlon works. There's ten events. They have five on the first day, five on the second day. At the end of the first day, halfway through, he's in first place, which is typical for him. On the second event of the second day, he's throwing the discus. You know, they stand in that circle, spin around, and throw the discus. On the first two throws, he stepped over the line. It's a foul. So he has one last chance. So he focuses his mind, he coils his body, he prepares, he hurls it with all his might, the farthest he's ever thrown it in his life, 164 feet. But the judge said, foul. No points in the discus, no chance to make the Olympic team. Incredibly discouraged, so he moves to the next event, the pole vault. Once again, no points. Well, he's so discouraged, he was in first place, now he's not even going to make the team. His career is over, such a horrible way to finish, so he just quits. He packs up his gear, his wife and his kids, he begins the 50 mile rush hour ride home on the LA freeway. The farther we got from the stadium, he later confessed, the worse I felt. Forty miles later, he turns to his wife and blurts out, Lynn, you're going to think I'm nuts, but I've got to try to go back and get in. So at 5.45, they turn the car around, retrace the one-hour trip on the L.A. freeway, we go back to the Coliseum, and he arrives just in time. Five minutes later, it would have been too late. So he comes back, he throws the javelin, and then it's time for the last event, the 1,500-meter run. Somehow, by now, word has gotten around, circulated through the crowd, and as he makes the final lap of the 1,500 meters, the crowd gives him a standing ovation. And although he finished in last place in his last decathlon, Fred Dixon, who had spent a lifetime on the athletic field proving what kind of athlete he was, on that day proved what kind of man he was. Because on that day... He proved his perseverance. And in the same way, you will prove your Christian character not so much in the great spiritual victories you will experience, but in your perseverance when it's not a victory, when there is no success, when the prayer is not answered, when God disappoints when you believe you're praying in accordance with the will of God, the scriptures, your conscience, your counselors, all say this is God's will. Just like Abraham prayed for 30 years in God's will. But the prayer was answered only in God's timing. In his day, Job was likely the richest man in the world. He was a success by anyone's standard. Man who trusted God, we're told, who faithfully lived for God, and God blessed his faithfulness with prosperity. But the time came when God allowed Satan to take it all away. As you know, everything he owned, all of his children, even took away his health, and all he was left with was his wife who said, you have bad breath. And she said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? In spite of all that God had allowed, Job said in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, though he take away the last thing I have, though he take away my life, my breath, my stinky breath, yet I will trust in him. Now, Job didn't always stay at that level. You keep reading, and then he he started complaining. But on that day... That was his finest hour. Just like Peter walked on the water, then he doubted God, and he sunk, and Jesus said, why you know, why didn't you have faith? But yet, he could say he walked on water. He, didn't, he blew it, but for a minute there, he was a lion. And the same with Job. What a moment to lose everything and say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Job is famous for his faith, not because it was rewarded for success. In fact, most people don't even know the end of the story that God gave back to Job more than he took away. More wealth, more children, more than he took away. Job is only known as the man God took away everything, and he continued to trust God. Job is known for his great faith, not because it was rewarded at the end. Most people forget that. Job is known for great faith because he persevered and trusted God when his prayers were not answered. So is it only those people or those churches that experience growth and success that have the evident blessing of God? Are those the only ones that have faith? William Carey was a missionary to India from England, 1793, he's considered the father of the modern missionary movement. Before William Carey, basically no one heard of missionaries. And he served in faith for seven years before he baptized his first convert in India. Now think of the difficulty there. Seven years. And when he's down, when he's discouraged when there seems to be nothing good happening, he couldn't text people back home and say, man, I'm down today. He couldn't get on Facebook and say, would you all pray for me and then see all these people praying for him? It would take six months for if he sent a letter asking for help for that to come to England and back, and sometimes the ship he would send letters on would sink, or the ship in which the help coming back would sink seven years lonely perseverance praying to God every day Lord I have sacrificed to be here here I am I'm all alone why don't you answer why don't you bless the sacrifice this obedience to you seven years before he saw God answer twenty years later the first Anglo missionary from America Adnaram Judson went to Burma faithfully served there seven years before he saw anyone become a follower of Jesus. In 1807, Robert Morrison went out as the first Protestant missionary to China. But again, he had to trust God for seven years before he saw one person come to Christ. Robert Moffat was a pioneer missionary to Africa. He waited in faith, how long do you think? Seven years before he saw the first evident moving of the Holy Spirit in his work there. Do you think these guys had faith These men and their wives, do you think they had faith? Well, of course they did. But how did they prove their faith? By going there, sacrificing, praying, and then seeing all these converts? No, they proved their faith by their perseverance when there was no answer to their prayers. When people weren't being converted. That's the proof of faith. The proof of faith is not always in success. The proof of faith is often in perseverance when there is no success. And, of course, the great example of anything good, as always, is the Lord Jesus. The more he persevered in faithfulness to the will of the Father, the more he was persecuted. He had those those times of popularity, but then the crowds you see in John 6 began to turn. So he's down to the last 12. He says, you want to go away too? The longer he stayed in faithfulness, the greater the opposition became. And in his humanity, in the hours before he was tortured and crucified, he even longed and prayed for the Father to to find any other way, any other way. But the proof of the faith of Jesus was his perseverance all the way to the cross. His prayer for some other way was not answered. How could he do it? Well, that's what we need to learn. The answer is in Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 2, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our faith is perfected by the one who started it, by Jesus, and fixing our eyes on him. Who, now is talking of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How could he go through Gethsemane? How could he go through the trial and the mistreatment and the whipping and the pain of the cross? He had by faith the joy of heaven set before him and he focused on that. And his faith was focused there. He believed that to be real. He trusted in the God of that place enough he would endure anything here For the joy there. As Paul put it in Romans, he said, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the joy set before us. Remember, he'd seen it. He'd been there. And he said, I'm telling you, what we go through here is nothing compared to what's there. And the man who wrote that, remember, was beaten times without number. How many times have you been beaten for your faith? Stoned, left for dead. Night and day in the deep, in danger from robbers, in danger from his own countrymen, frequently in prison. That's the man who said, this is nothing. Compare, it's tough. He said, I hate it. I, I don't enjoy this. Who wants to be stoned and left for dead? Those big rocks hurt. It hurts to be whipped and have the flesh ripped off your back and have that done again and again, beaten with rods. But he said, as bad as this is, I can tell you, I have seen it. The joy that's there is worth persevering here. That's how Jesus endured. That's how we are to endure. That's Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. I said earlier, anyone can stay faithful when they're getting the glory now. Martin Luther had a great paradigm he taught us. He said there's some that have the, the theology of glory and some have the theology of the cross. He said biblically it's a theology of the cross. The theology of glory is like prosperity theology today. People say, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and that's true for us now and all you have to do is confess that. That's a theology of glory. That You follow Christ faithfully, you follow Christ and you have enough faith It will be glorious for you in this world. But Martin Luther said, no, the theology of glory is not what the Bible teaches in this world. It's the theology of the cross here and glory there. The cross comes before the crown. It was for Jesus. It was for Paul. It will be for us. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And if you do, you'll be with me in paradise. anyone can believe when their prayers are all rapidly answered but the world doesn't get it I mean the world gets it when you seem to be prosperous and and miracles happen they understand why you'd be a Christian many of them would think well I'd probably be a Christian too if God answered my prayers like that the world understands that the world does not understand when you pray and God doesn't answer and you love him still That gets their attention. That says, that makes some of them think, what kind of Savior do you have then? If your Savior doesn't answer your most heartfelt prayers, tell me why you still love him. What is so great? He must really be something special if he can disappoint you like that and you love him still. If he doesn't answer your prayers and you still find him your greatest love, I don't understand that. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. With apologies to Jim Orrick, you can skip the long poem at the beginning. Read the first part and the second part. The second part is about his wife, Christiana, and their children who make the journey. It's a great, great book, Pilgrim's Progress. But Bunyan said this the Christian is like a bell. The harder it is struck, the clearer it rings. I love that quotation. Christian is like a bell. The harder it is struck, the clearer it rings. The world doesn't get it when you are stricken and you still love Jesus. But a true Christian does. The true Christian, like Abraham, says, I don't understand, like Habakkuk, I don't understand, but I love you anyway. I tell you what, if the hand of Belshazzar's feast were to come and to write on that screen, bad news, there's only one person in the world who's going to heaven, my guess is that it's probably Johnny Erickson Tata. The most radiant Christian I've ever seen. You know, the teenager, she dived into shallow water, broke her neck. She's been a quadriplegic ever since. She, she, she's right about 60 years old now. She has breast cancer. It's like, Lord, it, you know, is quadriplegic and constant pain not enough? Does she have to get cancer too? The most radiant Christian I've ever seen. And I tell you, that gets attention more than had she been healed and were to be walking today and be normal. And she is like a bell. The harder she is struck, The clearer the work of Christ in her life is made evident. And that's what a true Christian is like. That's one of the ways that God sorts out the false believer from the true. And in fact, right at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, when he sets out and he has a friend, uh, you know, the names of all the characters have character names. So, Pliable goes with Christian. He says, celestial city, the heaven, heaven it sounds great. So they go and right off they fall into the slough of despond. The they fall into the swamp. And, and Pliable comes out and he says, well, if it's like this at the beginning, how bad is this going to be at the end? And I'm going back. You know, it wasn't the glory he anticipated. So he gave up. But for the joy set before him, because he had confidence in the word that had been preached to him, Christian kept going. By faith, he hadn't seen it yet, and so that's how God often separates the true from the false, those who really are followers of Christ, from those who only want what Christ gives. And so, the Christian is like a bell the harder you struck, and you will be struck, the clearer it rings. Well, let me close with these practical words here three of them. First of all. Sometimes unrewarded faith is due to sin. So ask God to show you if this is so. Don't merely assume that you haven't received the answer to your prayer because you merely need to persevere. It's always healthy to ask. But I do think this. I mean, a true Christian, anyone indwelled by the Holy Spirit, tends to scour their soul looking for reasons why they haven't had their prayer answered scour their soul to see why things are so bad. And it's easy to find something. It's easy, well, it's because my thought life struggles. It's because of my anger struggles. It's because of of this. It's because of that. Anyone indwelled by the Holy Spirit who examines himself can find countless things every day to condemn themselves for. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that the Spirit of God puts his finger on and you refuse to even address. You're not even fighting it. You're not even confessing it. Because Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, 18, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, heart, the Lord will not hear me. So it is true that unrepentant sin can be the reason why God doesn't answer. But if it is that, I believe he will show you If a child was not receiving what it asked and said, Mama, Daddy, why are you not giving me what I ask?" If it was because of some sinful activity on their part, you would tell them, right? You wouldn't say, well, you figure it out. I'm not going to tell you. I'm, just, I'm not going to give you what you want and I'm not going to tell you why. You wouldn't do that. You'd say, I'm not going to give you what you want because you haven't obeyed me. I told you if you do this, I will give you what you want. And you won't do this. Our Heavenly Father is the same way. If the reason He won't answer is because of sin, I believe if we seek it, He will make that known. Second, because God's plan of holiness for you involves building faith and building perseverance, you will have Areas of your life where your faith must be proven by perseverance. Let me say that again. Because God's plan for holiness, God's plan for Christ-likeness in your life involves building faith, involves building perseverance. You will have areas of your life where your faith must be proven by endurance. Or he referred to this. This is true for Abraham and Habakkuk and Paul. And even Jesus, we're told, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. That's Hebrews 5, 8. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. That doesn't mean Jesus had disobeyed and had to learn to obey by by suffering. No, it means as a man, he learned deeper aspects of obedience by suffering. He learned, as a man, obedience wasn't always easy. That sometimes to obey God, you had to do it through suffering. He didn't have to, he never had that knowledge by experience in heaven. He learned that only on earth as a man. So those were aspects of, of obedience he learned only by suffering. And the same will be true for us. There are aspects of obedience we learn only through suffering. So, since his purpose is to make us like Jesus, part of being like Jesus is having a growing faith. Perseverance is a Christ like quality. The only way to grow those is through hard things. You don't grow faith by instant answers, you don't grow perseverance by instant answers. Faith and perseverance are developed in us by long obedience in the same direction. Now that's meant to be an encouragement to you. If you're likely in a situation where you don't know why God hasn't answered your prayer, it may be one of those situations where God is developing Christ's likeness by developing perseverance. He's developing something in you that he's not giving you through success, but through perseverance. So don't pull out of the race. Don't quit. Don't stop trusting God or his promise, even though you've been waiting a long time for the answer. And third, believe that God is just as faithful when he withdraws as when he gives you visible rewards for your faith. Believe that God is just as faithful when he withdraws as when he gives you visible rewards for your faith. One of my all-time favorite quotations is from a British preacher of the 1600s named William Gurnall, G-U-R-N-A-L-L, William Gurnall. Spurgeon said that his book was the single best thought breeder in all of his library. And I was preparing to preach a sermon on Habakkuk one time back... uh, August of 1985 and I came across this quotation and it ended up kind of being the thesis for the whole sermon the text I was preaching it just summarized very well in this statement and so I just I prepared the sermon using this all the way through the sermon and the statement was this the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God And I preached that on Sunday. I could hardly wait to get to church to preach that. Two days later, my dad suddenly, unexpectedly died. And God comforted me with that very much, that the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. And we need to believe he is just as faithful when he withdraws, when he delays, as when he gives the answer. You know, you get some chubby leg, 11, 12, 13-month-old who's being able to pull, stand up, pull around on the coffee table, you know, smiling, real big, proud of himself, herself, what she can do. You think, well, now's the time. So you pick them up, put them in the middle floor, you step back and say, okay, come to me. And they go, uh, which being interpreted in adult language means, you don't love me, I'm going to be hurt, I'm going to fall and get hurt, I can't do this, you don't love me, you've abandoned me. What they don't understand, they're not mature enough to understand, is that once they if they begin to fall, whoosh, you're right there. They don't think you can get there. They think you have withdrawn and abandoned them. But you haven't. In the same way, the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. That sometimes he withdraws so that we'll learn to walk. How? By faith. You ever walk down a tree-covered lane on a hot, sunny day, feel the warmth of the sun, then you walk into the shadow, the shade of those trees, and suddenly it feels like the sun is much farther away, right? You know it's not, but it feels like it doesn't. Sometimes God does the same thing. Sometimes we bask in the warmth of his evident presence. And sometimes he lets us walk where he feels like let's us feel like he's far away. Though he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Remember that the visibility, the, the reality of God's faithfulness is not measured by the visibility of his hand. The reality of God's faithfulness is not measured by the visibility of his hand. Well, I'll close with this. I know... Uh, young pastor who had a woman come to him during a very, very difficult time in the church and say if you had the faith that you preach about why don't you just trust God and leave trust God to provide for you and as, she thought, as he thought on what she said he realized sometimes it takes more faith to stay than to leave There was conflict in the church. She was the ringleader of this. And she taunted him by saying, well, if you had the kind of faith you preach about, why don't you just leave? Sometimes there are situations when it is right to leave. Sometimes it takes more faith to stay than to leave. Maybe today you're in a situation where God hasn't blessed you like he seemed to tell you he would, where it would be easier to quit than to stay in the race. And endure. But remember that the proof of faith is not always in success. The proof of faith is often in perseverance when there is no success. I hope you have a Savior you find worthy of following, even when He doesn't give you what you ask. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our faith. We all need it. Some here today are in desperate need of that. I pray you would encourage them with this. Give them the strength to persevere in faithfulness. Reveal yourself afresh as worthy of loving and following regardless of the circumstances. I pray in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.